What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with David Barnett and Pat Perry. David and Pat are the founders of Tour Junkies, a popular media network that provides weekly podcasts and blogs on everything related to professional golf. In this episode, we discuss the Saudi-backed league, changes the PGA Tour should make, sports washing, the 2022 Masters, Tiger Woods, Augusta National, and some memorable stories about caddying for Will Ferrell. This was an awesome episode, and I hope you enjoy it. But first, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals can change over the course of the day depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. Whoop is offering 15% off their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8Sleep. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot, but now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I ever have before, all thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The 8Sleep Pod Pro cover is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometric, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? 8Sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoros, and UFC heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by 8Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. Go to 8sleep.com slash Joe for exclusive President's Day savings through February 22nd. Save big and sleep more with 8Sleep. Now shipping within the USA, Canada, and the UK. Next up is FTX. I'm sure you've heard of them by now, whether it's because of their partnership with the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, the MLB, or Formula One, or maybe you've seen their legendary Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. Whatever it may be, it's obvious that FTX is dominating the crypto conversation in sports. FTX US is a safe, regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Plus, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than any other exchange on the market. You 
can even buy NFTs on the FTX app from top ETH and Solana collections without getting hit with fees. Simply put, FTX wants to make crypto exposure accessible, easy, and secure. Download the FTX app on your smartphone today. Use code JOEPOMP, J-O-E-P-O-M-P, for a discount on trading fees and start building your portfolio in less than three minutes. It's that easy. All right, let's get into today's episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. What's up, everyone? I have a special episode here today. I'm joined by David Barnett and Pat Perry. They run Tour Junkies which they can give a better overview of, but in my mind is the go-to source for everything golf-related, sports betting, and knowledge-wise. So Pat and David, how are you guys doing today? Great, Joe. Thanks for having us, man. Appreciate it. Doing fantastic. We appreciate it, Joe. Of course. Happy to have you guys on. So we're going to talk about a bunch of things today. First, though, I would like to start with what the hell is going on with the Saudi Golf League, right? So I wrote about kind of like a general overview of this. And for those that don't know, I do not follow golf religiously. I like to play it. I like to go on the course with my brothers, have a few beers. I am not good at golf. I am actually terrible at golf, but I enjoy being out on the golf course. But when it comes to the business side of golf, I probably look at most of the major events, right? Augusta and everything else. Uh, But on like a day-to-day, I don't follow the nuances of it. But the Saudi league caught my attention uh, because they're essentially trying to create a completely different league, right? Than the PGA Tour. Uh, So I don't know who wants to start, Pat or David, but like, if you guys can just give a general overview of what exactly is going on, and then we can talk more of the details around kind of who's interested and what might happen. I'll let Pat start. It triggers him. So maybe we can get him going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I wasn't expecting to start, but I will. Yeah, it does trigger me a little bit because, you know, I'm old school. I'm a big PGA Tour guy and I don't like change. David will tell you that, but You know, the thing about the Saudi league is it is interesting, though, because they're trying to do things different. They're trying to kind of do things that the tour is not doing. There's going to be less events. They're talking maybe 10 to 14 events, several over here in the States. I think when the first thing people think is, well, is everybody going to go play over in Saudi Arabia? And that's that's not really what it is. But there's a lot of money behind it. And they're offering some big dollars to a lot of big names out there to come over and play in this thing. We've already heard Bryson entertaining it. Phil, of course, I think Phil's been the most polarizing figure when it comes to the Saudi league. But again, it's still, there's just not a lot known specifically about it yet. We don't have a schedule or anything like that. We haven't had any official announcements. So there's still, there's still just a lot of questions around what it actually is and what they're going to do. I think it's also kind of important to know that there's another league and this other league kind of is getting lumped in with the Saudi league. There's actually the Saudi league, but also the PGL, which is the premier golf league which is a totally separate entity unrelated to the Saudi deal that's also trying to compete with the PGA Tour. They just haven't made as much noise yet because of the Saudi thing. And the reason the Saudi thing is so big is, like Pat said, they're backed by this group called Live Golf Investments, which is backed by a public investment fund in Saudi Arabia with government-owned dollars at around $500 billion. And so the big issue that people are having right now is that the money is coming from a government in Saudi Arabia that is doing unspeakable, awful things to, to humans, mm-hmm. right? And, to, and it's a big human rights issue. It's a women's rights issue. It's the way they treat certain people over there. It's, it's the things that they're doing with their money. The government's doing with their money. There's no free press over there, pretty much. I mean, even Phil referenced the guy yesterday 
yesterday that was a journalist killed based on you know some of the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia. So it's a big sports washing debate, right? And I think that's where the golf media and a lot of this stuff becomes so polarizing is because they're looking at these guys like Phil Mickelson. I mean, this is a big study in Phil to me because he has gone from being one of the most revered, liked people in all of sports to right now we are watching his reputation completely go down the gutter because he is acknowledging and admitting the things that the Saudi government has done and the places that this money's coming from. And he's saying he doesn't care. He wants to leverage the Saudi league to improve things on the PGA Tour. And there are issues on the PGA Tour. And this is not the first time that a new league has been created. The PGA Tour was created in the late 60s and 70s to get away from, from the PGA of America. So it's a big, complicated issue. But it all comes down to me to the sports washing thing that it seems like the Saudi government wants to do. Yeah, so that brings up an interesting point. I want to talk about, I think there's two components, right? Which is the business side and then the sports washing side with some obvious issues that are going on. But first on the business side, like the Phil news shocked me specifically, right? To your point, because Phil Mickelson's made like $800 million or close to a billion dollars in his career from golf. Like at this point, the large dollar shouldn't mean nearly as much to him as it does to someone who's maybe made 5 million or 10 million or $20 million, right? Who is looking to set themselves up for the rest of their life. Phil has made plenty of money in his career. So it's interesting to see someone who is one of the faces of golf for, for multiple decades now, literally say, Hey, look, I'm leveraging this to do something else. Like is it the money or in your guy's mind, is he essentially saying, hey, look, I'm not like, like what percentage chance, I guess, is the better question. Would you say he's actually going to go or is this solely just to try to get the PGA Tour to do things here in America? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that if he's offered a, this huge amount of money, I think he would go. And if this is a legitimate thing, you know, there's talk about Phil and his gambling. I mean, he's obviously known to be a big time gambler and I think he sold his jet recently. I mean, who knows why that was, but there could be some issues we don't know about some underlying things with his money. I mean, we see the millions and millions of dollars that he's made, but I do think there is some serious interest that he has in taking the big dollars and going over there. But on the other side of that, Part of me does believe that a lot of this is just posturing from a lot of these players to get the tour to make some changes and really filter out more money to the players. The tour started doing that. We've seen that with the PIP program. We've seen that with higher dollars with the FedEx events and things like that. So they're doing a little bit more of that. But now it's just getting a little more out in the open with this Saudi league and with these players talking about it and threatening to go over there. Yeah, and for those that don't know, and you guys correct me where I'm wrong or, or there needs to be additional nuance added here, but the PIP is essentially, I think it stands for Player Impact Program, right? And mm -hmm. it's a prize pool where the, the PGA Tour said, hey, look, we need to distribute some more money to the top players, to the stars who bring in all the eyeballs to the game. So they created this pool, I think for the first year it was $40 million or something like that. And they distributed on a scale of maybe 10 people, one to 10, the number one, whoever has the most impact gets the most money, filtered all the way down and you get less money. And there's a few different things that drive it, but essentially it's like how well you played, sure. But then there's also like Google search and a few other things on like the SEO side. Is that a general kind of overview of what it is? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think some of the complaints that you hear from the players, though, is it's a very arbitrary list and nobody really knows except those running the PIP program, including the players don't know how exactly it's figured up, right? Yeah. Phil won it last year. You know, he got an $8 million bonus from the tour last year. All in all, you've, you've summed it up. It's up to 50 million this year. 
50 million. Okay. And if I'm correct, I think Tiger came in second, right? And he didn't even play in an event last year, which is obviously shows how important he is to the sport of golf, but also, you know, relative, like if you're not playing, you can still win some money if you're a big name. All right. So on the business side, let's talk about a little bit of the differences between what this tour is offering and, and what the PJ tour offers today. So my understanding, right, is like most of these guys, maybe the top 10% of them make some decent money or good money off the course when it comes to an endorsements. But if you're a lower tier guy, you're really playing in these tournaments to try to win income that way. Maybe you have some other deals also. But if you're a top player, you don't win any money, right? Unless you place in the tournament from the actual golf side. So the PGA Tour doesn't pay you unless you win the purse or whatever you win during the tournament. This league, I believe, has a cap on the number of players and they're offering specific prizes per weekend, less tournaments, et cetera. Can you guys just talk through kind of how players are thinking about this versus the new and the old league, I guess we'll call it? Yeah, I mean, in a vacuum, so forgetting the Saudi stuff, the players have very legitimate gripes here. The PGA Tour needs to change a lot of things up with this. But the biggest complaint from the player's perspective on the business side is, especially the top tier players, is we don't get any guaranteed money, right? Mm -hmm. I was listening to your Kenny Florian episode yesterday, and he's talking about how the UFC kind of is a tough place to negotiate with, right? And that these fighters are independent contractors, basically. Same thing applies with the tour, but you know the PJ Tour isn't giving these guys anything, like you said, unless they make the cut. If they make the cut and finish 40th, you know that might be a $50,000 check. Whereas these other big leagues, you know the top four leagues in, in the US, there's guaranteed money, there's contract money, whether you play or not because you're a star and you drive eyeballs, there's not that going on. So number one, they're attracted to that, which the tour has less eyeballs on it than Major League Baseball. So do I think the top players on the tour should be making the same amount of money as the top players in Major League Baseball? No, I don't but they want to make more money. The other big issue that a lot of players have is the tour really has no off-season. It's 46 weeks a year. Trust me, me and Pat know. We do a podcast every <laughs> single week for every single tour event, whether it's the Masters or it's the Corrales Punta Cana Open, right, that nobody's watching. The tour has too many events. It's too long, and the top players are really punished in a way because they're not earning points for the FedEx Cup. They're punished if they sit out some of those, right? So they, they want to break. They talk about how grueling the season is, and I can imagine it is. So they're drawn to that with Saudi, and they want to change up from these same old, same old 72-hole stroke play events, especially the fans want this change up. And the Saudi League and the Premier Golf League both recognize that people want that. We don't want to see the same structure every single week on the PJ Tour for 44 out of 46 weeks. But at the end of the day, I think the players' gripe comes down to the tour benefits and the guaranteed money. Gotcha. And has anyone actually come out and said or like publicly committed to playing in this league yet? Publicly, like formally, no. Phil has admitted to hiring attorneys to help establish and help get the Saudi league structured. Wait, wait. So he's working with the Saudi league and his attorneys to build the documentation to build the league? 100%. Oh, so he's either like fully in or he's really trying to leverage it to get something for the PGA Tour. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think about the only thing that's maybe signed is you've heard a, a few players say they've signed some NDAs on this, but that's really about all we've we've seen. Yeah. And just to level set for those that don't know, Saudi Arabia has been doing this for 
some period of time now, for a few years at least. They've obviously have some violation of human rights or some human rights issues, right? There's Jamal Khashoggi was the journalist that you were referencing earlier that was killed. There's obviously unfair trials, executions for nonviolent offenses, lack of free speech, torture, all this stuff, right? So there's a bunch of fundamental human right issues that are going on over there. And sports washing is essentially using sports, the big names of sports, to wash away those issues, right? To, to distract people from what's actually going on. They have a bunch of money. The public investment fund, the Saudi Arabia Sovereign Wealth Fund, has $500 billion in AUM. It's the largest in the world. They actually bought Newcastle United, who's in the Premier League. Like they literally have the amount of money that they can do whatever the hell they want. So they've been spending a lot of money on sports. I think they bought Newcastle for $400 million. They did a deal with Formula One that's going to pay a billion dollars. Now they're doing this, which could be anywhere from $300 million to a billion dollars or something like that. And I think that the problem most people have with it is that basically any economic model you look at or financial model you look at, it's going to be nearly impossible for them to turn a profit if the numbers are accurate that they're actually paying, right? There was a report floated that they were offering Bryson $135 million. He said inaccurate. I don't know if he meant inaccurate up or down, right? Like th that's an insane amount of money. And when you start to think about how many players they need, and, and even if it goes down in the financial category, it's still going to be nearly impossible to turn a profit, especially in the near term. So I think most people see this for what it is, which is, hey, you're trying to bring sports as a way to wash away some of the ethical concerns. And I think that there's been some players, big name players, right, that have spoken out, Rory specifically and other guys that have said, hey, look, this is very clear what's going on, right? If you want to take the money and do this, you're not necessarily, I, I think there is concern, right? Some people believe that you're actually going to have to go play in Saudi Arabia 15 times a year, and that's not necessarily what's happening, but it's still their money, right? They're the ones driving all of this and trying to be the face of the league. So do you guys see, like, has there been a divergence between people who are like, hey, this is ethically wrong, and then other guys that are like, I just want to get paid? Absolutely. I think there's a big difference there. Like you mentioned Rory. If you listen to Rory talk about this, he is very insightful with his thoughts. And I think that he's a big tour guy, obviously, but I think he's very realistic about it. And I think, you know, he's already said, look, the top players aren't going. They've already said, we've heard Morikawa basically say he's not going. Rom, Rory's been outspoken. Even guys like Tiger are also outspoken and said, you know, it's interesting and, and it's something to look into, but it's not something I would ever do. So, you know, I do think there are some top players that realize what's going on and they also are interested in their legacy. I think somebody like Rory wants his legacy to live on. He wants to grow the game of golf the right way. Whereas these other folks just, they just want to go and take the money and, and do whatever. I love what Rory said too. He called it the pre-champions tour, which is kind of what you've seen with guys like Phil and Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter and those kind of Adam Scott that, that are more willing to jump over there. So it is interesting. By that, you mean guys like 40 and old, older, basically, that are yes. going to go to the champions eventually who just want to get paid. Exactly. Exactly. I think the only guy to come out and say, which this is refreshing, still, you know, there's a problem with it, but Jason Kokrak, who probably 99% of your audience, Joe, has no idea who that is. But obviously, <laughs> we bet on these guys every week, so we know. But Jason Kokrak, who is not a household name. He's won three times in the last 12 months, I think. He flat out came out and said, Look, this is about money for me. This is about yeah. being able to stop having to play golf and do the grind and retire when I'm 45 and just spend time with my kids and get that money and go. And he's reportedly getting around 40 to 50 million. And he's already got the Saudi Golf League embroidered on his bag walking on the PGA <laughs> Tour today. 
He's the only one. And and people have said like, hey, bravo to you for at least being honest. I was just going to say, I respect that way more than these other guys because it's like, at least we know where you stand, right? Like if it's going to impact your reputation, at least be honest and say, hey, look, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And if I remember his quote correctly, I saw it for like a brief second this morning, I think, but he had like a very distinct age. I don't know if it was 42 or 43 or 44. And, and it was like a very like weird age where you're like, all right, he has a plan in his mind. Like, I don't know if that's when his kids go to college or when they're 18 or whatever it is, right? But he was like, I, I want to retire at this age specifically and spend more time with my family. And I'm sure he has a number in his mind where he's like, I need to get here financially and be okay. And what I read was, I think he's made like $20 million in his career. You know, you subtract, you know, all the commissions and everything else that goes along with that and taxes, whatever. And maybe he's left with a few million dollars. So he's like, look, if I can get paid 40 to $50 million to go do this, I can retire at the age that I want to and spend more time with my family. I'm probably willing to sacrifice a little bit on the reputation side. I don't know if everyone's willing to do that, but ultimately, like, yeah, at least have to respect the fact that he's being open and honest about it. Hey, maybe he's one of the actual few people that have a sound financial plan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you're wrong on that. I think most guys are probably winging it until they figure out exactly what they want to do. It's certainly interesting. <laughs> but back to that point, it's funny when you think about other sports leagues, because one thing I want to do is get your guys' opinions on like what you would do differently, right? If you were the PGA Tour, because I do think that, and we've heard other players say this, and you guys mentioned it earlier, which is like the structure is pretty unique, right? You're offering these guys guaranteed money. You're offering a shorter schedule. You're offering kind of more competitive or entertaining events. And ultimately, when you think about other sports leagues here in, in North America, the major four, right? MLB, NBA, NFL, and NHL, all of them distribute about anywhere between 54 and 48% of their total revenue to players, right? So they have unions, they work out these deals through collective bargaining agreements, and they pay them essentially around 50% of total revenue. The top players take Stephen Curry. I think he's the highest paid NBA player right now. He makes about $45 million. Patrick Mahomes signed a $500 million deal. And NBA is fully guaranteed. NFL is not always the case, but they have large guarantees and so forth. So if Steph Curry doesn't play in a single game, right, if he tears his ACL in training camp, he gets all $45 million of it, regardless of if he does anything. That's obviously not the case in golf, to your guys' point, where even if Tiger Woods doesn't play in events, he makes money on endorsements, but he doesn't make any money on the actual golf course. So Money is one portion of it. And then the other portion of that is like, obviously, guys want to spend time with their family. They don't want to play in as much. They don't want to have to travel to whatever the hell that tournament was that you named earlier in Cabo or whatever it is. <laughs> so like, what would you guys do differently if you're the PGA Tour seeing some of what they're interested in the Saudi League and then bringing some of that over here? Hmm. I mean, I, I think... Again, going back to the schedule, the rigors of this schedule for these guys is big. Now, the tour is going to tell you in terms of the money. The tour has come on record recently and said that you know they're a nonprofit organization, very unique nonprofit. But they're fifty-five percent of their revenue they say goes to, towards players, towards purses, towards. And does that count? Does that count? Are there like minor leagues too? Are there other leagues that money gets distributed to? Because I had read somewhere too that they were distributing like 20% or 25% of the revenue. And then they came out and were like, no, it's actually 50 something percent. And Phil has obviously been very vocal about the amount of money that's distributed. So is that like full on PGA Tour or is there like other sub leagues that get money too? I think Phil's number was like 25% or something like that. And the tour basically yeah. said, no, it's, it's almost double that. I don't know if that 55% number is strictly PGA Tour money because obviously they also have the Corn Ferry Tour. They have the McKenzie Tour, which is the Canada deal. They have the Latin America Tour. They've got the Champions Tour, right? So I don't know if that 55% covers all of that because I think those tours, I would guess those tours have their own revenue streams because they have their own sponsors, their own corporate sponsors. I would assume that. And those purses are obviously much smaller. I think the big gripe too is that the tour puts too much money in the Champions Tour. 
and it really should be either the PJ Tour or the up-and-coming stars of the Corn Ferry Tour, which is where we get guys like Will Zaltoris and Scotty Scheffler, who just won the other week. These guys are going to be stars in a matter of time. So the tour needs to reallocate sources there, so I would do that. And they've got to, I think in some cases, give some guaranteed money to their top stars that, that is guaranteed. That's not an arbitrary PIP program, guaranteed money to those stars, whether they play in these events or they don't. And I think they have to stop diluting the product with 46 golf tournaments a year. The PJ Tour Player Advisory Council, which we're close with a couple of players that are on that, have just met recently and they're already talking. I will give the tour this. They're, they're responding to this Saudi stuff and they're moving. How quickly they execute, I don't know. But the Player Advisory Council just had a meeting, I think, this week talking about restructuring the fall events, which starts in September and runs through basically the week before Thanksgiving. Right now, it's 11 stroke play events and it's weak fields and it's guys nobody really knows who they are and it competes with the NFL. So I think the tour is considering restructuring that time to some sort of team event competition or some different formats so that golf fans and players are more interested to play. I I would start there. I think the whole product is way too diluted with 46 events a year. Yeah. And a lot of the feedback that I've seen or read about this is like, if you think about other sports leagues, like take Formula One, for example, they have a global audience, obviously. So so it's a little bit different as in the scale. I think they have like 70 million people that watch each race, but they are very intentional about not diluting the product. Right. They stay really within the 20 to 23 to 24 races per year for that exact reason. Right. If you have 50 races a year, it starts to dilute the product and people don't care as much, especially when you start competing on NFL Sundays and you're doing all these different things. So I think that's a good point. And then I think the other point, yeah, is is just guaranteed money. Right. I think people want to be entertained. But I almost wonder, like, how many golfers do you guys think if you were to do a closed league, how many golfers would be like the cutoff? Right. Like I think there's been floating around like maybe 2025, but I feel like there's way more competitive golfers to be able to cut it off there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like maybe that doesn't even matter. But in my mind, right, like if the league like this was to ever succeed, I feel like from a talent perspective, yeah, it's always fun to have Tiger and Phil in there. But there's guys that like would come out and win tournaments all the time that aren't necessarily top guys. So it's it's difficult to put a cap on it. It's still golf, right? It's the most variable sport on the planet, right? Me and Pat talked about this the other day, just on a phone call. It would have to be a combination of those top players in the world and then the most interesting guys on tour that we don't get to see enough of, right? Like just last week, they played the, you know, the Waste Management TPC Scottsdale. And one of the viral clips is our buddy Joel Damon and Harry Higgs, two characters on the PGA Tour, right? Joel's won one event. Higgs hasn't won at all. But these guys are hilarious. They're authentic. They're genuine. They took their shirts off on the 16th green. You know, Joel's waving his, his shirt around his head. These guys are hilarious on Twitter. They're great personalities. And they do begin to drive eyeballs the more that the tour or other outlets highlight these guys because they're great personalities. They're way more interesting to talk to than Dustin Johnson, I assure you. But they just don't play like Dustin Johnson, right? So I think a combination of that, like the Kevin Kisner types and the Joel Damon types and the Harry Higgs, with those best players in the world, I think is where you'd find a sweet spot. And that may be up to 50 players. I don't know. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about the Masters. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you guys spent a lot of time not only talking about golf and, and all the betting stuff around it, but the Masters specifically. I think both of you guys grew up in Augusta, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you guys are very familiar with the area and the course and everything like that. Let's start with like, what are you guys looking forward to this year? I know it's coming up in March or April. I mean, yeah, sorry. What's the biggest storyline this year for you guys? Well, I think there's a few. I mean, one is the fact that we're actually going to have a full amount of fans there. I mean, this will be the first time in really two years that David and I have even been able to get on the grounds because they had the Fall Masters in 2020. 
And then they moved it, of course, back to April for last year, but they had a very limited amount of fans. So I think fans being there is a big deal. I think that's going to be interesting. There have been some course changes. They just came out yesterday and actually announced a few course changes. And it's always about lengthening, right? You know, this is a course that the Bombers have really been able to take advantage of. So they've made some changes to the 11th by moving the tee box back and a little bit to the left. That's going to make it longer. And then also to the 15th, which is one of the easier holes on the course, they've moved that back. So some of the course changes, I think, will get talked about a good amount going into the Masters. And then, of course, Tiger. And what, what what's Tiger going to do? I don't believe he's going to play. He had a press conference this week. It doesn't sound like he's even close. But there will be some talk about Tiger you know, leading up to this tournament. So what is Tiger up to? I know, I thought I read that he said he will play on the PGA Tour again. He just doesn't know when, essentially. Yeah, it sounds like based on the press conference this week, he's putting, he's chipping, he's taking like shorter iron swings and stuff, but he's not fully able to go all out with the longer clubs, the driver, but he's practicing on it. He knows it's going to come around. He did come out and say flat out, I will never play a full PGA Tour schedule again, which a full PGA Tour schedule to Tiger would probably look like somewhere between 15 and 20 events. So he said, I'm not, I'm never doing that again. It's not happening. But I do think we'll see him play again. We'll see him play majors when he's healthy. We'll see him play some marquee PJ Tour events when he's healthy. But I, I agree with Pat. I don't think we're going to see him at Augusta. We may see him later in the summer, but I don't know that we're going to see him in Augusta. And how does it work for a guy like Tiger? Obviously, there's exemptions for tournaments. Does he get in basically every major he wants to for like, the rest of his life if he if he's continues to play yeah i mean i don't yeah. i don't know the, the nuts and bolts of that yeah for a lot of tour events they get a lifetime exemption based on wins or based on number of starts or based on career mm -hmm. earnings so like he'll never have to fight for a pga tour event again or a masters obviously as a winner but for the open the pga and the u.s open i can't imagine him not getting in if he wanted to play yeah all right so let's talk betting a little bit when it comes to the masters who are the favorites currently well, if you're looking at the top, really, John Rahm's the best, number one player in the world right now. He, he's a favorite. I think he's somewhere around like seven or eight to one. Jordan Spieth is up there as well. He's around 10 to one. And Jordan is a guy that's always up and down on tour, but plays that course extremely well. One of the things that you see with the Masters is basically time and time again, the way this course plays, the history that you have there and the experience you have there tends to kind of drift some of these guys closer up into the shorter odds. Let's talk about Tiger. There's odds on Tiger right now at 40 and 50 to 1, and he hasn't even played in almost two years, but he has an excellent record there. So the top of the board, those are kind of your, your favorites, your Morikawas, JT, those type guys. It sounds like you have someone in mind that's like kind of a hidden gem right now that you're thinking about. I've got a couple. I mean, I think, well, I'm always a sucker for Rory. I want Rory to win the Masters so bad. He's at 16 to 1. He's my favorite, really shorter odds guy. But the guy I love is Cam Smith. He's at 25 to 1. He's really taken his game to the next level. We've seen him already win this year. He's come close to winning the Masters. I think in the, it was the November Masters, actually. He was the closest one to DJ. So Cam Smith is one that I love. And then a guy we saw just win last week, Scotty Scheffler. I think the floodgates are about to open for Scotty Scheffler, one of the best players on tour for the last couple of years that didn't have a win, but he played in the Ryder Cup, finally gets a win last week. So I think Scotty Scheffler is another one, and he's right around 35 to 1. I usually let DB do the long shots. You know, that's his deal is, is, is the long shots. I'll, I'll take more of the shorter guys. So I have to I have to defer to him to, to some long shot plays. <laughs> DB, tell us who you got. <laughs> uh, well, I do. If I was going to, you know, stick around in the shorter numbers, I do agree with Pat on the Cam Smith thing. The thing about Augusta National is it takes a little bit of time to figure it out 
in order to then contend. There are outliers, right? Like Will Zalatoris last year could have won the thing, finished runner-up to Hideki Matsuyama as the first year he ever played. But we haven't seen a first-time winner at Augusta National since I think the late 70s or 80s. I don't know, Pat was around then, he could tell you. <laughs> but it was Fuzzy Zeller. Anyway, experience matters at Augusta. And we see a lot of guys, and I'm teeing up my guy right now, we see a lot of guys long in the tooth that we thought were done win Augusta National. Sergio Garcia back in 2017, 2018, I think, who had never even won a major at that point, who everybody had written off and thought was done. Even people like Hideki, who people see as older because he's been on the tour for so long and he had so many tries and he couldn't get it done and then he finally gets it done. So experience matters. For that reason, I think Louis Oosthuizen, the old South African who has finished runner-up at every major championship, known to man. He finished runner-up to... Uh, or second or third to Phil at the PGA when Phil won last year. He's always played great at Augusta. He's got a buttery swing. He's at 40 to one. So I like Louie a lot. I like Mark Leishman, the Australian. He's at 50 to one. He's always played Augusta National very well. Loves that golf course. Been around it a, a number of times. And then there's one guy that I love. He's at 80 to one. And he's, he's South Korean. I call him our South Korean prince. I freaking love this guy. He's electric on the tour. His name is Siwoo Kim. And he always plays Augusta well. He's an aggressive young player. He hits the ball plenty far enough at Augusta. He's had some good finishes at Augusta, and he's a multiple PGA Tour winner. He knows how to close the door. Siwoo's one of those guys who's either going to be in the top five and contend to win, or he's likely going to be, if he makes the cut, he's not going to give a rip for the next two days if he barely sneaks in and he's going to finish like DFL. But Siwoo at 80-1 to 1 is one that's been around Augusta National a handful of times, and I think could get it done. Well, he also he knows how to putt with his driver on the course, too, so... Too, he so. famously <laughs> snapped his putter last year during the Masters yeah. in frustration. Yeah, I remember that. But I was going to say, it's it's so funny that you say Louis Oosthuizen, and I'm riding with you on that because whenever someone asks me for a major, like who I'm picking, and as someone who casually follows golf, I always say him. Literally every single time I say him because I'm like, this motherfucker, he, he comes in second every single time. I'm like, every time I watch a major golf tournament, this guy is the runner-up. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, one time yeah. he's got to break through. He's there every single time. It's got to happen at least once. I say it all the time on our show that everybody says they can't win until they do, right? Like, which seems stupid, but it's happened with Sergio, who I just mentioned. It just happened on a regular tour event. It happened with Tony Finau. Everybody was like, God, when is Tony Finau going to finally win a real PJ Tour event? He finally does it. Jason Kokrak, who I referenced earlier, the Saudi poster boy for now, he's been on tour for a decade and could never get it done. And he finally did. And then he won two more times in the next 12 months. You know, like, so sometimes it just, a place like Augusta is where that happens for one of those guys who's been a around for a while. And maybe this is getting too far into like the psychological aspect of it, but why is it that like a guy like him finishes second so many times? Is it just bad luck? Is it like a mental thing? Is it something else? I think for Louie, a lot of it's just been bad luck. I mean, he's he's running into guys that on Sunday have just played better. I wouldn't say he's necessarily choked a lead away or anything like that. He just runs into... You know, it's kind of like Greg Norman at the Masters who could never win a Masters. I mean, he just kind of ran into some bad luck, you know, and that's really what it's been like for Louie. And you guys have obviously been to the Masters, I assume. Is it the best sporting event that you can go to as a fan here in North America? It is unreal. I mean, we've been very lucky to attend a lot of Masters. And my favorite thing for me is being able to take somebody out there for the first time and letting them see what it's like and the experience is like. You walk out onto the grounds and it drops straight down. You would never believe the slopes that are out there. But just the way they treat you out there, I mean, from the time you're going through the gates, everybody's extremely nice. 
You go in there, you get you an egg salad sandwich and a beer for $5. It's just an amazing experience all the way around, all the way to the bathrooms. You go in a bathroom and they're like, tell this story. Yeah, you can tell this this is my go to. This is what I tell people when I say, let me explain to you the difference in this sporting event, right? Because <laughs> you go to the Super Bowl, what, you're still pissing in a trough, right? You're, you're standing there next to a bunch of dudes, smells terrible, the bathroom's blown up. It doesn't matter. You go to Augusta National on any bathroom. I'm not talking about corporate hospitality bathrooms. I'm not talking about any of that. Any bathroom on the grounds of Augusta National. When you walk in the door, you're in the line. The line moves rather efficiently. When it's your turn and you're up at the line, there's a, usually a high schooler who volunteers, gets paid that week. The high schools around Augusta kind of do a lot of the dirty work for Augusta National that week because it's their spring break. So there's a high schooler who's asking you, do you need a stall, sir? If you need a stall, you say, yes, I do. And when one opens up, okay, so, so let's say you walk out the stall, Joe, you're done. Another high schooler is going to walk into that stall with a spray bottle and some paper towels. He is going to spray the seat for your ass. <laughs> yeah, and wipe it down. And then he will literally open the stall and escort you into the bathroom to do what you need to do. And then when you're done, he's going to do the same thing for the next guy. And that's for a regular person. Ex- excuse my pun, but they don't even do that shit at nice restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> and this is pre-COVID days. So, th- I mean, they were doing this stuff like for a while. It's just when you walk on this on the grounds, from the moment you step on the property, the security guards, the people taking your tickets are smiling. They're saying, well, good morning, sir. Welcome to the Masters. Good morning, man. Welcome to the Masters. Have a wonderful day when you're leaving. Have a great evening, sir. Thank you for coming to the Masters. Come back again to see us. Everyone on grounds is there to make sure you have the best experience possible. It's the best run sporting event, hands down. I'd put it up against anything. I will say this uh, real quick. So I talked about how cheap the concessions are, but if you get out of the pro shop spending less than $500, you've lucked out. Yeah. Yeah. I remember writing about the Masters last year, and one of the things that shocked me, like on the business side, was how much money they leave on the table. Right. And everyone knows most of these major sporting events, whether it's the Super Bowl or anything else, they make a lot of their money on the broadcasting, right? You sell it to CBS or NBC or one of these other guys. And that's actually the TV rights is one of their smaller line items for the Masters because everything I've heard is like they just essentially want to control everything. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. They don't want specific advertisers coming in. They don't want it messed up in any way. And they're very particular about kind of Mm -hmm. how the tournament is run. They obviously make some of that up through merchandise and tickets and some other stuff. But the general consensus is that they leave about $200 million on the table in broadcasting rights, which is just crazy when you think about it in the context of like how much the event makes because that's that's probably about a hundred percent increase from the total revenue that they just leave on the table to do it their way and i think it's fascinating and it's an approach probably like no one else has ever taken but i would love to hear more about how the hell this ticket process works because my dumbass has been filling out this form online every year for like the last four to five years I do it. Someone sends me the link. I fill it out and I sit there and I don't think I've ever gotten an email, even in response outside of like, hey, we got your form. But my understanding is you fill out this form and and they select a certain number of people through a raffle and they give tickets to maybe it's practice round or one of the rounds on Thursday through Sunday. But like, just talk me through how this works. Is there actually a chance? Like, should I just stop now or should I continue to do this? I think there's probably a chance. It's very slim. When you go through the lottery process, I mean, yeah, you're either going to get practice round tickets. I guess several years ago, they started giving daily passes to the actual tournament days. Actually, getting a four-day badge is extremely tough. Now, they don't have any kind of waiting list or anything like that. The way I hear it is that they give current badge holders the opportunity at times randomly to designate badges for family members, but that's kind of rumor. 
The thing is, if you want to get there these days, you really just have to pay up. I mean, if you absolutely want to go there, you've got to go through the ticket brokers or whatever else. The lottery itself is just so hard and it's so random. I mean, nobody knows what their process is for that. Yeah. All right. It sounds like I'm just going to have to pay one year if I want to go. <laughs> but so talk to me through like the home rental process. I know that these homes go for like ridiculous amounts during the week. There's just so many people coming in. What's the experience there? Yeah. So Pat grew up here and until what, maybe six years ago, lived here. Mm -hmm. He doesn't live here anymore, but I rent my house out every year. I'm still in Augusta. I think it was, I don't know how long ago it was, Pat, and I don't even remember the name of it, but there was a What's cool is years ago, our, our U.S. government actually passed a tax code based on this very week because Augusta is not really a destination beyond the Masters. You know, this isn't a hot spot for an Airbnb rental or a VRBO rental. People don't usually come here other than the Masters. So they've made this tax law that said if it's less than, I think it was like 14 days or something yeah, throughout the year. Yeah, it's basically just a, a loophole in long-term versus short-term rentals that they're able to take advantage of. And it all depends on how close you are in proximity to Augusta National. Obviously, the size of your house, how many people it can sleep. Is it a host house? Does it have a pool and a great outdoor patio area? But I know there are neighborhoods, there are hot spots around Augusta where people can get six figures for a house rental for one week. I got a, plenty of friends who live closer to that get forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 for that week. I don't get that much because I'm about 22 miles down the interstate towards Atlanta from Augusta National. So I can't get that much, but it's still pretty sweet. It is spring break for all, all the schools here. So locals either get the hell out of town and go on vacation and they rent or they just stay put and enjoy the week. I've always enjoyed the week. It's my favorite week of the year. So my wife and kids usually go somewhere and I will either stay somewhere with a buddy or I'll sleep on my parents' couch closer to town and rock and roll. It's my favorite week of the year. I love that. Yeah. I mean, if it's spring break, that matches up pretty well where you can just dip town and, and rent out the place. But Pat, I've heard you have a story about Arnold Palmer and driving, I think, your dad home <laughs> from the golf tournament. I would love to hear this story. So there's so many things that the Masters used to be just, you had so much more access to these players back in the day. You know, my dad would tell you that he can remember hanging his feet into the water in the Sarazen Bridge on 15, you know, so you could get closer to these players. And and Arnie used to stay at a house that was just off of one green. And, and now there's not near as many houses that are even in the vicinity because the natural just bought them all up and made them parking lots and things. So the house that he was staying at was one of my dad's good friend's houses. And so he went over there and they were just hanging out playing. And, and Arnie came over because he was staying there. And my dad didn't have a ride home. And so Arnie had to go out. And so he just said, I'll take you home. So my dad got to ride with Arnie. I, I'm hoping it was just a really cool car because I'd imagine it had to be. And he's just the coolest guy ever. And he took him home. And dad said it was just an unreal experience for him because at that time, I mean, Arnold was the king of golf. It was the prime of his career. And I think it just speaks to the fact of how accessible these players were back in the day, more so than, than they are now. But there's a lot of cool experiences from that. I know DB used to caddy there as well. So he's got some from his caddy days. DB, what's one or two of your best stories from caddying there? Well, I'll tag on the Arnie story. I had one interaction with Arnie and it, it was the craziest thing ever. I lucked out and got the last bag in his group as a part-time caddy. So basically he flew three friends down from Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He was playing. It was a fall day in October in Augusta. And I got to be one of the caddies in the group. Augusta has one-to-one -one caddies. There's no double bagging. So it's yeah. one caddy per man. So I was caddying for a guy in his group. But it was really towards the beginning of Arnie really not looking fully healthy and like being able to 
do the things he wants to do. And it was just an incredible experience for me to meet him on the driving range and then walk with him for 18 holes. The thing that stands out to me the most about that experience was here he is in his 70s and he's Arnold Palmer and nobody cares how he hits it at this point. But he was so fiery and so competitive and he would get so mad at himself. Like he was talking bad to himself and talking down to himself, hitting bad shots. And and you could tell it was like a legitimate competitive thing coming out of him that he's he's mad that he can't hit the shots that he, he wants to hit even at 70 years old. I just remember being blown away by that. But he was as kind as he could be. And my only real direct interaction with him other than meeting him on the range was on 18. He had hit it in the fairway bunker on 18. And his caddy stayed back to rake. So he hit it out of the fairway bunker on 18, just short right of the green on 18. His caddy stayed back to rake, and I grabbed his bag to walk up with him so that we could keep going. So I walk up to the front of the green right there, and I've presented the bag to Arnold Palmer, and I'm just sitting here, and he's going to hit this chip shot. And at Augusta, our hats, our caddy hats, had this little badge on the side that had our caddy name and number. And he's like standing over the ball, and he's like taking a few little practice shots, and he looks up at me, he like looks around at my hat and he goes, David. And I said, yes, sir, Mr. Palmer. He said, you know what I'm going to do after this? And I said, no, sir. What's that? He said, I, I don't know if you know, but they've got this real sweet young lady that gives a great back massage. I'm going to go inside. I'm going to get something to drink, a delicious sandwich. And I'm, I think I'm going to have, I'm going to have a massage. And I said, Mr. Palmer, that sounds incredible. And he goes, yes. And he hits a chip <laughs> shot and he walks off. Like, that was it. Uh, but he was also super kind. You are not allowed to ask for an autograph or a picture or anything at Augusta National as a caddy. And I didn't, except this one time, walking down like 16, I looked at his caddy and I said, hey, man, like, I'll get fired. I don't give a shit. Like, is there any way he'll take a picture with us? Or at, he said, let me talk to him. So standing on 18T, kind of back so no one in the clubhouse could see it. Mr. Palmer said, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to take a group picture with you guys and I'll sign a scorecard. So he took a group picture with the four caddies and then signed a scorecard for each of us. And I have that today. And it was just the most amazing thing ever. I know we're running out of time. If we ever have another opportunity, I have an incredible Will Ferrell story. I caddied for Will Ferrell during Masters Week. And that story is like... Oh, we got we got time for that. Let's hear it. <laughs> so Masters Week, there's uh, all the other golf courses around town, Augusta Country Club, Champions Retreat. They're packed, right? And the Augusta National caddies are contracted that week to go to Augusta Country Club, which is right next door. It's the one you can see from Augusta National at certain places. And caddy during that week. So I was an Augusta National caddy. Obviously, we're not needed during the tournament because they bring their own caddies. So I get contracted out to go to Augusta Country Club. Three days into caddying Augusta Country Club, I'm working my tail off. I'm double looping it. I'm making nothing. And I'm getting nobody with deep pockets. Nobody's breaking me off like a big tip. And all these guys around me are making all this money. They're getting invited to dinner. I'm getting a shaft. And I was a good caddy. So I go to our caddy master. I'm like, dude, you got to help me out, man. I'm getting garbage bags. He's like, all right, I got you. About 10 o'clock that night, he texts me and says, I have a VIP bag for you tomorrow at one o'clock. I said, dude, well, I don't need one o'clock. I need 7 a.m. and one o'clock. I need both loops because I was getting married. This was in April. I was getting married in June. I was trying to make all this money. His VIP bag, don't worry about it. Just show up. I'm like, shit, okay. So I get here and he points to the range. He goes, your player's down there. And Will Ferrell was filming semi-pro. So he had this massive afro like orange and red afro hair thing going on and i'm like that's freaking will ferrell i love will ferrell i obsess my favorite movie's anchorman like love anchorman so i walk up there and he is just the craziest dude he's wearing 300 dollars jay lindenberg golf shoes that he had no idea where he got them from his bag was garbage the clubs were mismatched like literally like he came from goodwill 
And I said, Will, are you borrowing these clubs? He goes, no, those are my clubs. I literally flew them from California. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So we go in this great round. There's two great stories. On the fifth hole, I think, Pat, is it the par five at Augusta Country Club? Yeah, that's fifth it. Fifth hole, yep. he hits this shot, and it's the first time that he hit a green in regulation, so I'm like cleaning his ball off on the green. And I'm looking at this ball, and it's like an all-white ball with no logos on it, but clean, like not scuffed up, but no logos. All it had was a pink, sharpie, smiley face drawn on it. I'm cleaning the ball. I said, Will, what the hell is this? He's like, uh, it's my ball. Have you had it the whole time? He goes, yeah. I said, well, there's no logo on it. It doesn't even say like Ultra or some really shitty, you know, like Kmart golf <laughs> brand. He's like, I don't know, man. I just got it and I marked it. He drew the smiley face on it. And he makes the putt. And he looks at me and he goes, we're going to call it Super Bowl. And I said, okay, cool. We'll call it Super Bowl. <laughs> makes the putt, goes to the next tee shot, which is a par three with a pond in front and a creek to the left. He literally almost misses the ball. Terrible golfer. Okay, terrible. Like shoots 130 at this time. I don't know how he is now. He almost like misses Super Bowl, but he hits it low on the face. It bounces into a creek bed and like goes into all these rocks and creek. And I'm like, shit. And he looks at me and he goes, like dead serious, dead pain. He goes, David, you have to find Super Bowl. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> so, I, so all the players finish hitting. I go in the creek and I find it literally in the water among all these rocks. I walk up to the green. I'm cleaning it as I walk up. I put my hand in front of him with Super Bowl presented. He looks at me again like dead serious and he takes my hand closes my hand over Super Bowl and he goes, I think it's best that Super Bowl stay with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want him to fall into the wrong hands. <laughs> <laughs> so I still have Super Bowl. He's literally in my, I'll, I'll send you a picture of it, Joe. He's in my safe at home, Super Bowl list. That's the first story. I'll tell you one more. So we're playing with this young kid who was like 17 years old. He was a senior in high school from California. Long story short, Will's nanny and this kid's aunt were best friends. And they were talking about the two coming to Augusta together for the first time that year. This was in 07, by the way. So this kid, James was his name. He was 17 years old. He literally meets Will Ferrell on the driving range with me and is going to play golf with him. And the kid's amazing. Great player. I don't know whatever happened to him. Really great player. Augusta Country Club never comes back to the clubhouse until you get to 18. So we leave, we tee off at like one o'clock, it's a five hour round, and we see no one other than other players. Well, word gets out that Will Farrell is at Augusta Country Club. And now it's like, it was a five hour round. It's like six o'clock, 6.30 in the evening. And Augusta Country Club has thousands. I'm talking, I mean, Pat, it might've been two or three, 4,000 people. Yeah. Standing on, yeah. The, standing on the back patio. And we turn the corner around 17 to go to 18 on the golf cart. And you turn the corner and the fairways on 18 are lined with people. <sighs> and then the clubhouse behind it is just thousands of people. And when they see him pull up with the afro and everything, they all just start erupting. And they're drinking and everybody's cheering. And he is scared shitless. He looks at us. He's like, I don't know how I'm going to hit this golf ball. Again, about 130 is what he would have shot had we kept score. Like he could kill someone out here with the golf ball. So he's nervous as he can be. We hit a terrible tee shot. Everybody's cheering for him. We finally get up to the green and James has about a 30 foot birdie putt. And everybody's now surrounding the place. They don't know who James is, but James is like freaking out too because he's never hit a golf shot in front of thousands of people. We're on the green and Will Ferrell's standing next to me. I read James's putt. He's going to hit. It's all quiet. Everybody's quiet. He's about to putt. And Will looks at me and he goes, watch this. And he goes, excuse me, everyone. He like yells, he puts his hands up and James like comes up off the ball and he's like, this is my friend James and he's going to make this damn birdie putt. And everybody's like, yeah, you know, everybody starts cheering and screaming and, and James is like, oh my God, he backs off. He's like, what? Are you? I mean, this kid is 17. Yeah. Dude, 
he makes the damn putt in front of everyone and the place goes bananas. Will's like hugging him. It was insane. All these people want to like swarm him and he couldn't have been cooler. He couldn't have been nicer. He comes to me and he says, hey, come over here. Let me get you before this crowd goes nuts. He breaks me off a great tip. We've made up for the whole week. He signed a scorecard for me. We took a picture. I'll send you that as well. I weigh about 134 pounds. But we took a great picture. He was just as kind as he could be. And he was super funny, like just genuinely funny. But he wasn't trying to be like on or some character. He was just genuinely hilarious. He laughed at other people's jokes. He was absolutely just the best. It was the most memorable day I've ever had. And I have a terrible memory, but I remember all the details from that. <laughs> yeah, you did. That's amazing. That's awesome to hear that. Not only is he a nice guy, but he's just as funny in person as, as he is in, in movies. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up. So people don't know this, but DV, David Barnett here, has gone full-time on the Tour Junkies. So congratulations, man. You and Pat do some incredible work. For the people that don't know, you guys do a podcast, but you have a website and you do other things also. And mostly what it is, and, and you guys can kind of give the 30-second pitch here, but you guys break down content on the PGA Tour every week, right? So you're doing research, analytics, you're giving betting odds, you're giving your picks and everything like that. Talk to me a little bit about kind of how this came together, why people should check it out, and then like where they can actually go check it out. Yeah, man, we've been doing it seven years, and I'm finally taking the leap. Me and Pat have been doing this alongside our full-time jobs for that long, and I'm pumped to do it. Inspired by you and your brother as well, man. Love what you guys are doing. and appreciate the nod here. Yeah, every week on the PJ Tour, or every week there's a major golf event, we're breaking it down, handicapping it from a betting or DraftKings DFS perspective on YouTube, on wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website, tourjunkies.com. If you can bet on it and it's golf, whether it's PGA Tour, Corn Ferry Tour, DP World Tour, formerly European Tour, we've got coverage for it. And we've been doing it for a long time. So if anybody wants to check it out, betting or fantasy golf, tourjunkies.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Pat is obviously the brains behind the operation. So we'll let him have the last word here. (laughs) (laughs) Pat, when are we convincing you to go full-time on this? Oh gosh. Well, I'm hoping end of 2023. We got to see how this goes in 2022 for DB, but we're excited for him. We're excited for what we've got. This is going to allow for us to do more content, provide more things out there. So we're excited. And, And I think one thing I got to mention is with all the content that we do with the, with the betting stuff, with everything else, is we just want to make it fun. You know, we're both very passionate about golf. We've grown up around the game. And so when we started doing this, that was the main thing was we want to give out good information. We want to give good picks, but we want everybody to have fun listening to us and enjoy it and, you know, make golf not as boring as some may think it could be at times. But we appreciate you having us on and, and getting to talk with you. Of course, guys. I talk about this sometimes, which is like, Sports betting is obviously getting huge here in America, and golf is one of those sports that I think people see as being a major avenue to facilitate kind of the growth of sports betting also. So you have a bunch of people that are rushing into this stuff who see it as kind of a way to make money, right, or an avenue to do certain things. And the reason why I like you guys so much is you can just tell, I mean, anyone who's listening to this podcast now, you guys live and breathe this stuff. So I'm really rooting for you guys, and you guys do some great work. So I recommend everyone check it out if you can, tourjunkies.com. You can listen to their podcast and everything else. Pat, David, thanks for doing this again, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it, man. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day, and I'll see you next time.